Looking at that last section of Philippians, uh, from chapter 4, verse 10 to the end, God speaks it to us. We want Him to work. Uh, we need Him to work. Uh, let's ask Him. Our great God and Heavenly Father, please do work by Your Spirit as we hear Your Word. Uh, please work love in us, which abounds more and more with knowledge and total clarity about what's good so that we would know what and choose what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to your glory and praise as the one who works it. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Do you see what's really going on in church relationships? Look around, look around, think around, or look around at the uh, brothers and sisters whose desire is for your progress. See them investing their time and talents and treasure uh, towards seeing you keep in step with the Spirit and not lose heart. See what they're doing and see what's really going on. See what God is doing. This passage helps us do that. If you're curious but not yet committed, uh, there are things to see in us and our attitude to you, which are the result of what Jesus is doing through us and in us. Do you see what's really going on in our church relationships? In your relationship uh, and partners uh, with believers elsewhere, uh, with our mission partners, uh, with others. Uh, Paul has been looking at his Philippian brothers and sisters and seeing God's work. Paul sees what they have been doing and he rejoices. Now, they have 10 years of history and I I thought I'd remind you a little bit of it. Uh, Acts chapter 16 tells us where it began. About 50 AD, Paul preached the gospel in Philippi. Men, women and children put their practical trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and Paul moved on. Acts chapter 20 mentions Paul going back again. He stopped in Philippi on his uh, way uh, through Macedonia, northern Greece, down in uh, down towards Corinth and Athens in the south of Greece, Achaia, and then on his way back again, going back towards Jerusalem. That was about six years after he first preached the gospel in Philippi. Within a year or so of that, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, uh, then two years or so of captivity in Caesarea, uh, before he asked for his case to be heard in Rome by Caesar. So ten years after he first preached the gospel in Philippi, they heard he was in Rome waiting for trial, and a result which would would come in either as uh, freedom or condemnation and execution. And the Philippians sent a financial gift and their brother Epaphroditus to help and care for Paul in Rome. Over those ten years, they'd made a whole series of choices to stand with Paul. And Paul finishes this letter talking about their partnership with him, uh, how he lives in, in various circumstances and how they should think about their sacrificial choices. Now, I think it will help us to hear what Paul is saying if we take a few minutes to think about 
their choices and God's part in their choices. It's important to know that their choices are real. Their choices are real. They actually chose. God is in control of everything, but he gives us no reason to think his overall control undermines human choice. Our choices are our choices. Uh, We look around us, we weigh up options, we decide, and we do. We're responsible. That's how God made us. At the same time, God is not limited by how he made us. God is able to work through the way our minds work, just like he's able to work through the way uh, moisture condenses in the atmosphere and falls, forms clouds and falls as rain, and through every other aspect of the physical universe that he made, God works through. Apart from some miracles, it's always possible to explain what happened without mentioning God's rule. But in everything miraculous and ordinary, God orders the things that happen. He is actually in control. Without breaking the nature of created realities, without reducing humans to the level of being robots, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11, if you want the illusion. Our wills are not free to operate apart from God. No one is. Nothing is. But our wills are our wills. Our choices are our choices. They're real. They're, they're part of the way God made us. And at the same time, our freely chosen deciding and doing accomplishes God's planned purpose. Now, one aspect of what Paul is talking about in this passage is God's control of everything. Everything from Paul's imprisonment to his transfer to Rome to the relative ease of communication between Rome and Philippi is under God's control. God has had a hand in the decisions made by enemies of the gospel, by ruling authorities, by unbelievers, by believers, in putting Paul where he is. But the focus in verse 10 is a different type of involvement. God has has had a hand in tuning the heads and hearts of the Philippian believers. From the first day, and still now ten years later, God has worked a willingness and determination to partner with Paul. They have worked out their faith. They have lived the practical implications of their practical trust because God has been at work in them. Again, without reducing them to robot level or doing a reboot or a reinstall of operating software, he has worked by his spirit as they heard the truth and goodness of God's word as they thought about it, as they recognized it, as they trusted it, as they uh, lived out new understandings of reality, uh, as they developed new desires to actively pursue holiness, uh, as they pursued opportunities to serve and love Paul, God was working in them. So when Paul sees what they're doing and when he thinks back to what they have done, he doesn't just say, thank you, to the people who chose and did. 
He rejoices in the Lord who worked in them and through them. He says, verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. He sees God's work. He sees the Lord Jesus' work in them and through them. And he rejoices in Jesus who has brought it about. Now, that little comment at the end, revived your concern for me, that could sound a little dirty about the long unconcern. But that's not Paul's point at all. He's not saying it that way in the next sentence. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He's not blaming them for showing no concern when they had no opportunity to show it. Uh, The distances separating them had made active partnership practically impossible for a long time. They had no opportunity. But when they had opportunity, they they chose to do something. Uh, Like like plants that wither in drought uh, and sit beneath the surface waiting for rain and revive when the water falls and grow again, so their concern was sitting there beneath the surface waiting for the opportunity and it's expressed when when it came. What they did is one reason Paul rejoices in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul sees the concern for him as an expression of Christ's concern for him. He sees the concern for him as an example of Christ's work in them. That's how we can see our mutual care, our care for one another, our being cared for by one another as expressions of Christ's concern for us and as examples of Christ's work in one another. Paul sees it, he recognizes the goodness of it, and he rejoices in Christ. Chained and captive in Rome, uh, but, but he's rejoicing in Christ who is caring for him and working in them, which is good for him and them. But as we read on, we'll see that Paul is most excited about what's good for them in all of this. But, but first up, he, he wants to be clear about what he isn't saying. He isn't mentioning their financial gift as a way to say, keep it coming, send more. To some extent, he doesn't need what they give. To some extent, he doesn't need what they gave. Verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need. He got the gift. He's glad they sent it. It's been a benefit. But he doesn't need more. Because he he doesn't need anything. Again, don't forget his situation. Uh, Paul isn't writing from uh, from a comfortable office somewhere. He's chained. He's been in chains for years. He's waiting for a trial which could result in his execution. But he's rejoicing in the Lord and he needs nothing. How can he possibly say that? Well, he tells us. Because he has learned in whatever situation he is to be content. He doesn't need anything because he's content with anything. So it's easy to be content to be content when we have everything we want. It's easy to be content when we have more than we want. I wanted four, but I got five. I'm content. It's not easy, but perhaps possible to be content with less than we wanted. I wanted four, but I realize I only really need three, and I have three, so I'll be fine. 
I'm content. But it's easy to be discontent. I wanted four, I got four, now I want five. The more we get can be the more we want. But God hasn't just taught Paul to settle for enough. He doesn't need enough. Verse 12. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. I know in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Humbled and hungry in prison or are cashed up and well-fed and free, he's content. He's not talking about how to be content with enough. He's talking about contentment with more than enough and contentment with less than enough. He knows how to experience the extremes and everything in between and still be content. See, his contentment is completely independent of his circumstances. It's only possible because Jesus strengthens him. And Jesus, and Jesus is able to strengthen him for anything. That's why he doesn't need. He's in prison, but he's not in need. That's the context of the almost always misquoted verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It can be quoted as if self-help determination and capacity to push through any opposition and achieve every goal has crept its way into the Bible. As if Jesus has committed himself to help us achieve whatever happens to cross our minds to aim for. I smiled at a bit of uh, what Don Carson said on this. Uh, The all things in this verse is certainly not unlimited, as if Paul uh, could be read to mean, I can raise the dead, or I can walk on water. Only only Carson could say this next bit. Or I can show you how cold fusion is a practical possibility. Paul's all things is constrained by the context. Paul isn't saying... The Lord comes in behind everything and anything. It crosses his mind to put his effort to. He is saying the Lord has proved reliable in strengthening him to do what God gives him to do, to live through what God calls him to live through. That's why he's content in any and every circumstance. He trusts God who put him there in that circumstance, to strengthen him to live through it. I wonder if, I think that, uh, part of what we need to hear is that the Lord is able to strengthen us in our present circumstances, whatever they are. They may or may not be circumstances we would have chosen. They are the circumstances he has chosen. Comfort or discomfort, Convenience or inconvenience, safety or danger, security or uncertainty, pleasure or pain, prestige or humiliation, health or sickness, harmony or conflicts. Both, not just the ones that sound hard. Whatever your circumstances, circumstances you'd have chosen or circumstances you'd have run from, you can look to the Lord who placed you in them and lean on him, rely on him, 
to strengthen you to live to please and honor him. This is something that we learn theologically and experientially. The theology comes first. It shows us the reality of the world we live in. God's control and care for us in the midst of all things. His ability to care for us, to strengthen us, to live through all things. The theology tells us that, and the experience of struggling to know how, of struggling to do what's best at the extremes and in between, is part of how the Lord forms and remakes us. So that we do live more and more with the strength He provides. With the contentment that doesn't rely on our circumstances that does rely on our confidence that God is in fact in control, that God is in fact able to strengthen us. Because Paul is content, he doesn't need enough, so he didn't need their gifts, and he doesn't need more, but he's glad they gave. Verse 14, they did a good thing. They did a good thing when they partnered with each other to partner with him in his affliction. Paul describes their precious partnership. Uh, They're fully aware. No one partnered with Paul when he moved on from Philippi through the rest of Macedonia and northern Greece and down towards the south. No one except them sent financial support to the one from whom they'd received the gospel. Uh, when he was in Athens and Corinth, and before that, when he was just a week west in, in Thessalonica, they sent help more than once. Verse 14, they did a good thing. They did a good thing then. They've, been, they've done a good thing in reviving their concern now. Verse 17, Paul says, Not that I seek a gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He doesn't need the gift, but it's obviously been helpful. But what he's most glad in relation to the gift is that when they gave, it benefited them. He's most glad they gave because it benefits them. I think here there is a little bit of keep it coming, send more, maybe to Paul, maybe to others, because there is a spiritual advantage to them. Fruit that increases to their credit. How are they benefiting? One way I've been thinking this through is um, that I think part of what this is part of what Paul had in mind when he wrote chapter two, verse seventeen, uh, when he mentioned he could rejoice at the thought of being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of their faith. He's happy to be the on the side poured out drink. Uh, beside the big maid offering, which is the overflow of their faith. In this case, the gift sent to support him. You see, by faith, they identified with Paul in his sufferings. They stood with him rather than running from him. By faith, they sent their brother Epaphroditus to care for Paul in his chains. By faith, they sent cash money to meet his needs. A decade before and more recently, By faith, they invested money they could have used for their immediate wants or kept for their future security 
By faith, they invested it in the work of the gospel. You thought about your giving to Sojourn and CMS, City, City Bible Forum, FES, in, in that sort of way? By faith, you invest money which you could use to meet your immediate needs or your future security in the work of the gospel. It's an act of faith. By faith, you invest time, talents, and treasure which you could have used in other things in God's work and in actively partnering to bring the gospel to others. It does real good. And God sees your sacrifice. Verse 18. Paul mentions how their uh, giving has done real good for him, full payment and more, well supplied, uh, because he has received the gifts they sent. But look at how Paul describes their gifts. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Those words come straight out of the Old Testament descriptions of of temple tabernacle sacrifices. Those sweet-smelling aromas of meat and spices burning, uh, they picture... uh, They pictured the pleasure God gets from people's faith-formed sacrifices. Those sweet-smelling aromas pictured God's pleasure in his people's faith-formed sacrifices. They are well and truly pleasing to God. Paul is delighted that they've acted in faith and he is delighted to know their generosity in the work of the gospel is seen and appreciated and enjoyed by God in heaven. And God is no one's debtor. He will reward them. See that verse 19? Paul assures these generous givers and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Same God who met Paul's needs through them will meet their needs. They can expect God who sees and enjoys their faith overflowing in sacrifice. They can expect him to meet their needs in every circumstance according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The expectation here is extravagance. It's not just... God will meet needs out of his, reach, his riches. It's according to, in a way that fits with his riches, on a scale that's worthy of his wealth. Now, we have to be careful here that our minds don't go off in the wrong direction. Uh, there's a prosperity gospel thought which says, give more than you can afford to God's work and God will give you more than you can imagine. The invitation is to trade to give some of the thing you desire most and you get much more of the thing you desire most. And if it's what it takes to get God in heaven to open the doors to his wealth is for you to empty the doors from your wealth, well, the price of entry is worth it. The mindset gives God glory as the one who can give you what's most worthwhile and most glorious. He's brilliant at giving you the most valuable thing in the universe, which is wealth. Now, just to be clear, though, to be clear, I don't think that's right. I do think, though, verse 18 is talking about physical needs. 
Paul's just mentioned them meeting his needs in verse 16. But it seems to be a mistake to narrow the needs to physical ones. We're listening to Paul whose own needs have been met in any and every circumstance. In plenty and hunger, in abundance and scarcity. I think it's most natural to hear him assuring them and us that the Lord who gave Paul strength he needed will give us the strength we need to live faithfully and contentedly. When life is good, we'll need, and God will give us, the power to enjoy and use the goodness of what he provides with gratitude to God the provider. When life is hard, we'll need, and God will give us, the power to trust his control of our circumstances and shake off any thought that the Lord has forgotten us. And when life just ticks along, we'll need and God will give us the power to live gratefully and sacrificially. In any and every circumstance, we need and God will give us a growing recognition of his goodness and strengthen us to live to please and honor him. He will supply our every need according to the riches, his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, who will transform, who will return to transform our, our ordinary bodies to be like his glorious body and is now working by his spirit to shape us from the inside into his likeness. God will meet those needs extravagantly. Lean on him. Verses 21, 22 close off uh, with warm greetings between uh, God's people, uh, between people who have met each other and people who have never met. All are family with each other in Christ Jesus. I'm sure Paul was thrilled and excited to mention the believers uh, in the emperor's household, the emperor before whom he had signed trial. I'm guessing some of those, the guards who had heard the gospel from him, but others also. Warm family greetings between family members in the fundamental union of being Christ's family, knowing one father. All right, so do you see what's really going on in church relationships? There are lots of things going on out there. Some have seen here, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're, we're choosing to serve one another. We're doing real good. Uh, we're doing it because the Lord is working in us and through us. So we can rejoice in the Lord who is working. Our Father is genuinely pleased by our sacrificial investment of time, talents, and treasure. So we can invest in one another both to do good to one another and to please our Heavenly Father. I mentioned before the mindset that gives God glory as the source of wealth as if the wealth is the most glorious thing. It's not the only way to prize something as if it's worth more than God who gives. Uh, there are goals to pursue in Philippians, new attitudes, new behaviors, uh, new confidence. But none of them are ultimate. None of them are the main thing. None of them are the central goal. They each matter because God matters. They matter because everything centers on God, our Father, who we come to know through His Son. 
our Lord Jesus. God who works in us so that we desire and decide and do what is pleasing to him. He matters. Centers on him. Paul's prayer in verse 20 is more than a nod to God. More than just some words set out of habit. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's both expressing his desire and reminding us what everything centers on. What all those goals, what all those desires, what all those realignments of our attitudes or of our intentions Useless if they stand alone. Everything centers on our eternal Father and His eternal glory. Almost at the start of the letter, Paul said, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This last sentence, The grace of of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. His settled conviction is that our relationship with God in Christ is founded on grace. God gives it. It's his undeserved kindness. Christ's love for us while we were still sinners, his continued love for us while we struggle on, that gift and grace has a goal and many sub-goals. Through Paul, God calls us through Paul, God calls us to work towards those goals towards the ultimate goal. To work with the fear and trembling without grumbling and or arguing in response to God who speaks. Uh, those goals, working towards them demands our effort. But the individual commands are not the goals. The individual new attitudes are not the goals. As standalone goals, they are not worth the energy and effort but as expressions of practical trust in God our Father, they are worth the effort. Pursuing them because we know God is at work in us. Pursuing them because we know God enjoys seeing his forgiven children show more and more of his son's likeness. Pursuing them with that mindset honors him, gives him glory. That's worth the spirit-enabled effort. That is Christ's purpose for his people. Let's ask God to work it. Let's pray. Our great God, please give us that clarity about what is indeed good and best to pursue. That we might know Christ, that we might know you, that we might live to please and honor you. That as we hear the bits and pieces uh, of the Bible, as we see new things, uh, to, to aim to think clearly, to, to trust that you'll come through on, to aim for obedience, that those things would come in as part of an overall desire to please and honor you because you are worth it. You are glorious. Please work it for the glory of your son. Please work it for your own glory. Through Jesus. Amen.